Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 29 of Sleep Talk, our podcast talking all things sleep. And this month we're going to talk again about sleep and cancer and a bit about the biology and some of the upcoming approaches to cancer treatment. And I'm joined again by my co-host, Dr. Moira Ewer. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone listening. So if you enjoy the podcast series, write us a review on iTunes. And we're always looking for more topics to talk about, about sleep or suggestions. So send us an email at podcast at sleephub.com.au. So what's topical this month about sleep, Moira? Well, I think that there's a, a seminar or a wonderful thing going on at Golden Door in May. Tell me more about that. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm getting to go back to Golden Door again. It's that, <laughs> you know I'm really jealous. <laughs> that tough thing I have to do every every now and again. So, yeah, really looking forward to talking to the guests at Golden Door. Give a seminar on sleep. But one of the things I actually love is just being in the resort all weekend mm-hmm. and you know, I get to have my own time doing things, but really talking to all the guests about sleep. So, you know, I go on the morning walk, I sit with people at meals and say, you know, chew my ear. You want to talk about sleep? I love talking about sleep. And I really enjoy that. That's great. Oh, well, good luck. Thank you. And so something that caught my eye is we talked some months ago, it was last year actually, when Simon Frankel had mm. been to the US mm-hmm. meeting and heard some research about, you know, poor sleep, increasing amyloid deposition in the brain, which is what's seen in Alzheimer's. Mm. We're saying, you know, look out for the media report saying you're going to get Alzheimer's if you don't sleep well. And, yeah, there's a a UK media report with exactly that headline that then got picked up in Australia. And the headline was just one night of bad sleep increases Alzheimer's protein. So that's Which a, is the fear, that's the, the one we didn't necessarily want to come yeah. out as the headline. So that's but the it, headline it has. that catches your eye and you're like, if you've got insomnia, it's like, oh my goodness, now I'm guaranteed to get Alzheimer's. And it is interesting how much penetration that those sort of stories have had because lots of people yeah. ask me about that. And you know from a, I mean, a social media point of view or an editor, sub-editor at a newspaper, traditional media, you have to have a controversial headline, mm-hmm. don't you? That's, yeah. Isn't that the whole game? Which is a shame when we know it can increase fear, but it does certainly get people thinking about or talking about or reading that article and just hope embedded in the article is, hey, you can tone down your worry around it, hopefully. No. No? <laughs> didn't, it didn't. It didn't deliver. It didn't, no. Unfortunately, that article was pretty much... This is how you're going to get Alzheimer's right. if you have one but, night of bad And then sleep. there was a counter one, though, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, so the really interesting bit, the reason to bring this up, mm. is that within two days of that article being published in the sort of more tabloid media in the UK, the NHS had put out a publicity statement yeah. that also got widely circulated with the headline, Don't Lose Sleep Over Reports That One Bad Night Can Spark Dementia. Hey, so hey. I thought, yeah, oh, yeah that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Mm. What, what a great public health message. Mm. To be able to, in a timely fashion, within 48 hours, get that up, mm. get it posted, get mm. it distributed. So it was a really nice counter message. And put it put the research in perspective, basically saying it was a research study, only 20 normal people who, in an experimental setting, were deprived of sleep. And it showed a change in protein, yeah. which is completely different from saying that protein change is permanent, that if it yeah. keeps going, it's yeah. going to cause a particular yes. problem. We all know that there's a range of theories or potential explanations for how you get Alzheimer's and no one really knows for sure and it's probably at the very least multifactorial. Yeah, absolutely. So I really thought that was a nice sort of case example of the sensationalised sort of headline and the lack of perspective Mm. but nicely sort of countered Mm. by a really good public health message trying to put Mm. things in perspective. 
So this month we're talking again about sleep and cancer, but moving on from last month where we talked more about some of the clinical aspects of the sleep disorders and sleep symptoms people with cancer and cancer survivors can have. And this month we're going to talk more about some emerging concepts in the biology of cancer and biology of sleep and where these two things interact. And one of the things that triggered my sort of interest in talking about this was a paper that had come out from the nurses health study recently. And essentially the nurses health study is a very large longitudinal study that's been performed initially on around 80,000 nurses from the United States. And it started in 1976 and nurses have been followed now over many years. And one of the papers that came out of the nurses health study was uh, published in 2001 and showed that nurses working night shift for 30 years or more had a 36% increased risk of breast cancer. And that was sort of the only study looking at cancer risk and a night shift or shift work at that time. And then the same research group published a follow-up study in 2006, this time looking at 115,000 nurses in the same nurses health study too. And they found that those working for 20 years or more of night shift had a 79% increase in breast cancer risk. So bigger risk, it was slightly different in the methodology and the way they classified. That's even uh, higher. I mean, it was high enough. 36% 36% increase, now 79%, that's huge. Yeah, so a significant mm. increase in risk. Now, they didn't talk about which aspects of shift work because the research mm. protocol and paradigm didn't allow them to tease that out, mm. just that there's an association between night shift work over many years mm. and increased cancer risk. But nonetheless, those two studies, which are really the only sort of large epidemiological studies showing this association, were enough in 2007 for shift work to be classified as a carcinogen. So that was really the research that led to that classification. And some people may have heard that you know shift work can cause cancer, and that's another research yeah. underpinning that. I know that I've given lots of talks over the years, and I'm very quick, though, to qualify that it is still controversial, that it's because it's mostly really in those in female nurses rather than general shift workers all around the world, shift work per se. Don't you think that it's mostly really around those, like the, oh, the, the nurses? So, so still to this day, mm. they are the main... Yeah. What's really one study, but mm. one study that sort of got expanded yes. and continued... Yeah. Yeah really is the basis for that statement. Mm. And there's other smaller studies with less strong associations, but mm. it still really boils down to that's where that yeah. comes from. Yeah. So I agree with you. We just have to be a bit cautious. It's mm. females only. It's yeah. nurses, one profession only. You know, it's yeah. how do you general... not sure the exact sort of mechanism of action either, like the, the pathway... Yeah. Is it the shift work? Is it the night shift work per se? Is it, what is it? You know, Absolutely. Mm. So that raises exactly that question, which is where some more recent research that I wanted to talk about. Mm. Because, yeah, is it the misalignment of the circadian rhythm with sleep and wake, with feeding, fasting, with activity or rest? Mm. You know, what actually is it that increases cancer risk? One of the theories is that it's misalignment of the sleep-wake patterns with light exposure. So someone who would work permanent night shift during their sleeping period may be exposed to more light, that sort of natural light during the day. And during the night time, when they're working but partly the body thinks they should be asleep, might be getting exposed to more light. Mm. So a group tried to look at this by looking at the relationship between urban light and cancer risk in 110,000 nurses from the Nurses Health Study and followed the data from 1989 through to 2013. Peter James is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, Department of Population Health 
and was the lead author on this paper looking at the effect of nighttime light and cancer risk. So congratulations, Peter, on that really great paper. I enjoyed reading that, and it really was a bit of a challenge and you know a bit out of left field for us in sleep research. <laughs> yeah. So why did you want to look at the effect of light at night and breast cancer risk? Yeah, so previous work conducted with our research group has demonstrated associations between night shift work and breast cancer, which you're probably aware of. And it's been hypothesized that exposure to light during nighttime hours might be this mechanism uh, behind shift work in cancer. And indeed, animal and some epidemiologic studies suggest that exposure to light during nighttime hours can decrease melatonin secretion and disrupt circadian patterns in sleep, which would in turn increase breast cancer risk. And there are, there are some studies looking at outdoor levels of light at night. These outdoor levels of light at night have been considered a surrogate for greater nighttime exposure to light, as people living in these communities may experience higher levels of light exposure during outdoor activities in the evening, and they also might have more outdoor light intrusion into the bedroom. So, you know, in these previous analyses, they were they were basically uh, ecological studies, a good number of ecological studies looking at basic light exposure at, at the county or at a country level and looking at breast cancer rates at a country level. But there'd been, you know, just one or two other prospective studies looking at kind of trying to assign exposure at, a, at somewhat of an individual level. And there have been no nationwide studies. So, you know, we had access to this prospective nationwide cohort, the Nurse Cell Study 2. So we, we decided to, to look at this question within that cohort. Yeah, it's a great cohort. So what are some of the strengths of that cohort that allowed you to, you know, test your hypothesis? Yeah. So uh, first of all, the Nurse Cell Study 2 is a long-running cohort started in 1989. And it's, you know, uh, about 100,000 uh, women who've been followed for uh, decades since then. And so we have, based on prior analyses, geocoded their home addresses. So get gotten a you know longitude and latitude for their specific home addresses. And so we were able to link uh, environmental variables such as light at night to the to the kind of individual home address level. And then we could follow up uh, on those participants and look at incident cases of uh, invasive breast cancer. So how did you actually quantify exposure to light at night? This was actually, uh, you know, the fortunate case of being located in the U.S. where we have some amazing scientists who've been collecting uh, data for, for many, many years. So we, we took those geocoded uh, longitude and latitude of each participant's home address, and we linked each uh, address to NOAA, or National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Satellite Imagery. So um, the, NOAA had been collecting this data dating back to the 1990s, and they've been processing the data and cleaning the data, and they've created these data sets, um, these spatial data sets, where you have an annual estimate of persistent outdoor lights at night down to a pretty small scale, so about a kilometer squared uh, for the whole U.S. over many, many years. And wow. so we could link where the person lived at that specific year to the levels of outdoor light at night for that year. So we could create this kind of time-varying specific measure at the home address of the level of light at night for each participant and then follow up and see whether the level of light at night around their home might be related to their breast cancer risk. Yeah, okay. And what about, you know, there is the factor of a night shift worker who might drive to a different location and almost be shielded then from the exposure at their residential address. So, you know, how does... The, your measure, the way you sort of measured light at night, correlate with people's personal light at night exposure? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's, I, I, honestly, that's something that we are trying to look into now a little bit deeper. We know there have been a few studies that have looked at personal light at night exposure and these outdoor light measures uh, from satellite images, and they generally don't see the highest correlation. So it may be that we have a lot of what we call measurement error. But, you know, we do need to do more work to, to create these true 
personal light at night exposure metrics. Uh, however, that said, in, in our cohort, you know, we do have a lot of shift workers. Yep. And for those shift workers, we would be, you know, at least on the nights that they're working shifts, we would be mis, you know, characterizing their exposure to light at night because they'd be exposed to, you know, during the day, they'd be exposed to actually light from the sun uh, if they were home. And if they were at work at night, they'd be exposed to artificial lighting within the, the, the work environment. So we would be missing exposure for those participants. So what were the main findings of your study? Basically, you know, we followed 110,000 women for a few decades, and we observed about 3,549 incident invasive breast cancer cases. We found that those living in the areas of the highest levels of outdoor light at night in the, in the top 20th percentile, compared to the lowest 20th percentile, they had about a 14% higher risk of breast cancer over follow-up. So this was after adjustment for all sorts of reproductive lifestyle and socioeconomic risk factors. You know, surprisingly, uh, our positive associations were observed only among participants who reported smoking. And there was also a suggestion that associations were stronger in those who worked night shifts. So that's an interesting one that I'm kind of uh, uh, looking into a little bit further. And, you know, this study provides evidence that women living in areas with higher levels of outdoor light at night may be at higher risk for breast cancer. But, you know, there's a lot more work that's required to confirm our results and clarify potential mechanisms. And were there things that you found that you weren't expecting? The one thing that I was most surprised by was how robust our findings were to adjustment for other factors. Uh You know, we really threw a, a lot of things. This is a really rich data set, the Nurses Health Study 2, where we collected a lot of information on lifestyle and, you know, family history of breast cancer, diet, physical activity, screening from, you know, mammography and uh, you name it. So we, we, we threw all those things into the model and still we really didn't see the association change at all, um, which gives us a little more confidence in that association that we're observing. And we also accounted for factors that might be correlated with light at night, including, you know, air pollution, so, you know, neighborhood socioeconomic status population density, and still results were consistent. So I thought that was pretty surprising. And, you know, I think I think our finding on, on shift work, so stronger findings amongst shift workers was a little surprising to me. Mm-hmm. As you said earlier, you know, we, we, we might expect exposure to be a little bit off for shift workers because they'd be, you know, working at night. And so I expected that maybe we'd see stronger findings amongst non-shift workers. But, you know, it, it also kind of makes sense that we're seeing this idea of, you know, the shift workers are having circadian disruption. Yeah. And then even on their on their nights off, they're exposed to light at night, which might further uh, disrupt their circadian patterns. So it may be this kind of two-hit uh, idea that they're getting they're getting a kind of double dose of disruption of their circadian patterns, um, and that might be what explains their their breast cancer risk. But you know, we we definitely need to do more to understand exactly the mechanism there. Yeah, that's intriguing. That potential interaction between someone who's already sort of circadian vulnerable, if you like, by doing shift mm-hmm. work, and then you add the mm-hmm. exposure of light at a at a vulnerable time, and that is a multiplicative yeah. risk potentially. I, I think that's exactly what we are speculating, and and you know I think we do need to do more to really understand these patterns of exposure, but also patterns of behavior. For instance, you know these questionnaires are asked every two years, so when we're asking about shift work, we don't necessarily know what their pattern of shift work is, and we don't know about their kind of uh, you know 
exposure to light at night, how it actually might interact with that pattern of shift work. So if they're working one night, you know, a week of shift work, and then they have the rest of their time, you know, working day shift, we might actually just be seeing, you know, that the, the light at night is actually a pretty good measure of their exposure during sleeping hours or, or in the evening when they're trying to get to sleep. So it, we, we definitely need more information on that. And, you know, we're, we're working on that with trying to develop better measures of, of uh, circadian patterns with, uh, you know, accelerometry-based measures or even smartphone-based measures of, of behavior. If you could do it all again, what else do you wish was in the data set? You know, which confounders? Do you, do you sort of wish you'd collected that you know it weren't quite there? For this specific analysis, what I really would like more than confounders, I think I would I would like better measures of you know personal measures of exposure over long time periods. That would really improve this analysis. As I said earlier, these outdoor light at night is an interesting measure, but it's really a proxy for that personal exposure to light at night. So if we could somehow obtain some some better measures of personal exposure to light at night, that would be great. Information on light infiltration into the bedroom would also be be really nice. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think it also may, might be really useful to have objective measures of you know time activity patterns, sleep patterns through accelerometry to confirm you know these specific pathways through which light at night might affect you know circadian patterns. I think that would be really, really helpful. I think also, you know, some other measures that we might want and we're working on, noise exposure. So noise might be, ambient noise might be correlated with light at night and might explain some of the circadian disruption. So uh, we're, we're looking into analyses with noise as we speak. Mm-hmm. It would also be great to have information on the specific wavelength of light. So there was a recent study in Spain where they obtained blue light spectrum data from the International Space Station. And they found that, you know, that this blue light that might have the, you know, be most active in melatonin suppression, they found that that specific spectrum was associated with increased odds of breast cancer and prostate cancer. So that's another thing that would definitely be uh, uh, nice to, to have that information. And looking across all the studies that have been done in this area with this cohort, you know, there's been shown to be the increased risk of breast cancer in you know, nurses doing long-term night shift work. How much mm-hmm. of the risk do you think is attributable to light at night? So I think that's actually a question that I don't think, at least I have the data to just disentangle just yet. You know, our study looked at outdoor light at night the other studies that, that have looked in the, in the nurses really are, I think, more concerned with indoor light at night or personal exposure to light at night. And, you know, it may be lifestyle factors such as diet and physical activity might explain associations between shift work and breast cancer, although some of Eva Schoenheimer's work within the nurse cell studies has shown that that's not true. But, I, you know, I think we do need to do more work to, to measure personal light at night exposures and melatonin levels, too, maybe, uh, before we can truly isolate light at night exposures as the kind of driving force behind increased increases in breast cancer amongst shift workers. We have looked at other factors like, you know, air pollution, other environmental factors that that might be related to breast cancer risk. I don't think we're seeing so much there, uh, but it, but it's worth talking about potential protective factors. So, you know, we've been looking at things like exposure to greenness or, you know, natural vegetation around the home, which might provide opportunities for physical activity or social integration, uh, social engagement, which is a, you know, kind of these are known pr- protective factors for breast cancer. And we are seeing some promising things there. So, uh, you know, it's, it is worth uh, exploring these kind of positive environmental factors, these amenities that might actually decrease our uh, breast cancer risk. I know you're um, maybe that's not your area of research, but but something worth thinking about how uh, there might be positive amenities, environmental amenities for for breast cancer. Yeah, absolutely. We're best not to focus just on the what the, what are the things to avoid, but also to know what yeah. are the things to try and get more exposure to. Yeah, exactly. Great. Thanks a lot for your help, Peter. Great. 
Well, that's a, a great interview. Fascinating, isn't it, that all the, the different variables and the insights into what could be going on. It's still really quite specific and a little bit unclear, would you oh, think? Absolutely. I think it gives us a bit of a signal that mm. light may be one of the mm. factors that's mm. mediating that increased cancer risk. But, yeah, the data certainly shows it's not the only thing mm. and there's still more work to do in understanding that relationship. Now, the second area we wanted to talk about, thinking about sleep and cancer and how sort of the timing interacts is looking at cancer treatment. So for a long time, the treatment of cancer using drugs like chemotherapy has been very focused on dosing. So what dose do you need to get a certain peak concentration to kill a certain amount of cancer cells? And then how far can you push that dose before you then get toxicity symptoms? But one of the things that hasn't really been looked at in that is the timing of the medications. Because a different way of conceptualizing it is that at one point in your body clock cycle, a certain drug may be more likely to kill cancer cells, whereas at another point in your body clock cycle, it may be either less likely to kill cancer cells or more likely to kill healthy cells because mm. they may be more active during that time. So that's given rise to this school of thought that if you actually look at the timing of chemotherapy, you may be able to get by with a lesser dose being more effective or causing less in the way of toxicity. Because I've heard a lot about that. And I mean, last year's chronobiology conference, it was over on that beautiful Waiheke Island mm -hmm. off Auckland. Very interesting meeting. And it's just, it's, there's so much they're talking about with timing of medications and timing of this. And, and the reality is, and it's so exciting, but it's not here yet. Right. In, it's not in the, in the real day to day world. And I know a number of family and friends having cancer treatment and I don't, they're just in normal hours as in it's, they're not, I don't think anyone specifically is looking at the timing of like, it, it's probably still, it's still in the research phase. Day to day, it's around just the practicalities of, of shift work and, and getting people in at normal hours. And I don't think that they just take the time they can get rather than oh, I think this drug is going to be better for you at this time. And it's not there yet. And that we're pretty slow in general without translation from research into practice. Definitely in Australia, I would, I would say that's a worldwide thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, part of it is we still don't have a good bedside quick measure of where someone's circadian rhythm That's sits. That's right. So that'll help things a lot. Which is the starting point you need to then yes. tailor the dosing based on the body clock. That's right. Mm. But this concept raises a couple of terms and concepts. So one is, bear with me, chronopharmacokinetics. Think of that as how drugs are absorbed and behave depending on the timing. And the second concept is chronopharmacodynamics. So think of that as about the effectiveness of medications and how they interact with other systems somewhat independent of the actual dose depending on where those other systems are in terms of the body clock. So look out for the terms and concepts of chronotherapeutics that is clock related treatment in coming years as the basic science data that's really now quite compelling makes its way into the clinic and this starts to be incorporated into general clinical practice. You know, I think in five years' time, the way chemotherapy and actually a whole lot of other treatments are delivered will change in that understanding the phase of the body clock will be very important in optimising the response to treatment outcome rather than just, oh, well, the vacancy we have in the chemotherapy day procedure unit today is at 10 a.m., so that's when you get your drug. It'll be absolutely tough to the individual to optimise the response. So if people are looking for more information on the topics we've talked about, there's a really excellent review on the body clock timing chronopharmacokinetics written by Narin Ozturk. 
as the first author, and that's in, in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences in 2017, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So, Moira, what's your clinical tip of the month? Well, talking about shift work and coping with it and trying to stay well, etc. I think it's really important to recognise that some people do shift work really quite easily. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily impact them terribly. They can cope really well with the disrupted sleep and the short sleep sometimes. And others, it really does impact them terribly. They're very quite sensitive to circadian rhythm disruption and to sleep loss. So for those that it doesn't come easily to, or people caring for those people it doesn't come easily to, just be aware that you're going to have to get really good at the other stuff, the general health techniques of making sure you, you're fit as you can be, that you prioritise good food, good exercise, making sure that you you know do prioritise sleep and try and get as much sleep as you can in a catch-up way, in a preemptive way, in a regular way as able, even despite the chaotic shift stuff. And then I guess there's the reality that sometimes people do maybe down the track have to realise that maybe they've got to wherever possible look for other work too if it really really, really is impacting on them terribly. Yeah, and that's my wish for the future is, you know, our teenagers or kids, we can genotype them and tell them in primary school, you know what, shift work, long work hours ain't going to work. Yeah, in the same way that they screen them for other things like their personality traits and their interests, for instance, they get skewed into certain career paths. Just one little more question would be nice just to look at how they do cope with sleep loss. Yeah, I'm not sure how I'd go though if, you know, my child got told, you know what, you can't do med school because you don't have the right gene type. That's true. And you won't be able to cope with the long work hours. So I'm not sure as a society or as a parent I'm ready for that. We're not ready. <laughs> but the, the technology is not far away. Yeah. So we've got the pick of the month. What's your pick of the month? What's caught your eye this month? There's a really nice article on the association between chronotype, so think of that as morningness type or eveningness type, and then health risk, including mortality. And the fascinating thing that struck me about this article was that in those people who declared themselves as eveningness type, they just identified with, I prefer to stay up late and prefer to get up later Mm -hmm. in the morning, compared to early morning types, there was a 10% increase in death in people of late night types. Really? Yeah. And so that's the sort of, you know, it's a pretty stark take-home headline. (laughs) (laughs) And the interesting thing for me is trying to unpack that and think, well, why? You know, what's tied up in that? I don't think it's that being a late night type is associated biologically with health risk. And I wonder then how much of it is societally based that we live in a world that's really geared to early morning types. And if you're a late night type, you're always a bit out of sync with your body clock. And maybe it ties into some of the body clock and health risk stuff and the night shift risk and starts to overlap with some of that. Well, and maybe the late night people, maybe they are a little bit more risk takers, a little bit more wild. Yeah, good point. Might be having a bit more booze, a few more party drugs, a few, a few more um, falafels and maccas on the way home. Yeah. Please note we do not discriminate against late night types. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just speculating. I'm just wondering wondering out loud about yeah. what where the associations yeah, might be. I agree. But they probably controlled it. So there wasn't... There wasn't really any sort of comment on controlling for those sorts of things no, or looking for again, that. because, again, this, really, this was, yeah. a, was almost like the sleep stuff was an add-on yeah, to yeah. a much larger yes. study assessing yes. lifestyle factors yes. and health risks, mm-hmm. and this was one paper just about that sleep mm-hmm. sort of type, chrono, mm-hmm. chronotype. But, yeah, I think interesting to think about why mm-hmm. that might be so. And if it is about societal factors, about the way we structure things, we need to look at changing that because that's, you know, if you're inducing increased health risk in a subset of the population just because of the way you structure the timing of society, mm. 
yeah, that's that's a bit weird mm. and that, that's not right. Mm. What about for you, Moira? Well, I think it's good to talk about the, the Headspace app, which I don't know if I've had it as my pick of the month before. It's certainly an app that people use. I think there's lots of different aspects to this app and they, there is a sleep-specific one, I believe, or they, you know, people actually use it to help them get to sleep, a meditation app. And I don't think it's free, this is the other aspect. I think there's, there's some level that it's free. But ongoingly, you have to pay a small amount. And what's interesting about it is it is very popular with a lot of people I see it's, as clients, as patients. And they report that's quite effective. And I thought until last year that it was Headspace, as in our local Australian sort of mental health youth group that, you know, that specifically are funded to, to target young people and their mental health. But it's not. It's an American group that are, that are putting out this, this app. So, it's, yeah, it's very good. I think that another thing for Sleep Health Foundation is to actually look at those apps that are, pop, are popular in Australia and particularly Smiley Minds, a really well-known one and people yep. really like it. And their, num- their research, their, their CEO has told me that their number one feedback that they get is about sleep the number one concern that people that are interested in their their app are always emailing them and asking them about sleep what about sleep do you have a sleep specific one so that's something that's on the radar for the future for here in australia great Mm. all right what's coming up in the sleep world things to look out for so the same sleep meetings i highlighted uh, last month to look out for so sleep 2018 in baltimore in early june the southeast asian academy of sleep medicine meeting in lucknow in mid-october and then the Sleep Down Under meeting in the week after that in October in Brisbane. So they're all really interesting sleep meetings and often a lot of media around those meetings. So you will see sleep research that's presented at those meetings picked up in the media. So keep an eye out for those things. And look out for our next episode, which will be episode 30. And we're going to talk about sleep after head injury and talk to some people in Australia who've done some really good research in this area. And it's a surprisingly common thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And not necessarily talking about severe head injury like fractured skull, that type of thing, but even just people who've had a couple of concussions mm. have surprisingly high rates of sleep problems that persist for a long period mm. of time. Yeah, and, and stroke too. We, we can we can put that in can we put that in the same heading maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Just, just a, you know, a, a brain injury of some sort. Yeah, I look forward to that one. Yeah, I'm involved in some research that's been ongoing for many many years at, at Monash University in Clayton in Melbourne. It's Excellent what they're finding with specifically targeting sleep and information about sleep and cognitive behavioural therapy and improving outcomes for people sometimes many, many years after their brain injury. So thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, send us a review on iTunes and you can subscribe via any podcast app or via the Sleep Talk app in the iOS store. Thanks, Maura. Thank you. Talk to you next month. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.